I wish you could all be here in the studio to see Joel's childlike glee every time he presses a button designed to make a sound, and it makes a sound. But we should be able to get at least nine different fart sounds, right? I will say, people sometimes ask me what surprised me the most about having a baby. One of the things that surprised me is that most baby sounds are like baby sounds, but baby fart sounds sound like adult farts. That's a true fact. I did not I did not know that before having a baby. We could just loop that phrase for the first 20 minutes or so. This is the Stack Overflow Podcast, episode 91. Wow. Recorded Tuesday, October 11th, 2016 at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York, New York, home of the New York Transit Museum. A city where every day, 5.7 million people ride the subway, but we still have a whole museum about it. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Sukkot, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkot is the Jewish holiday where you have to eat and sleep in a temporary hut you build in your backyard. Ooh. On today's podcast, special guest Omoju Miller and the usual crew, Vice President of Community Product, Jay Hanlon. Good afternoon. VP of Engineering, David Fullerton. Hi. And our news editor is Ilani Yitzhaki. Hello, everyone. And this week, for the first time, a special episode of Stump Nick Craver. Hey. I'm sorry. We have a soundboard now. I need cheering, too. So oh, lifelike. Man. So lifelike. It's like we're yeah. inside yeah, a kill it. fake Thank audience. <laughs> I'm your host, Joel Spolsky. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be back. You know, I've actually been to the New York Transit Museum. Have you? Is it, any, yeah. is it not just like Wait, taking the subway? Let's ask a question to Joel's point. So this is a museum designed to educate you about the existence of and function of the New York Transit okay, System. Okay, okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Before you start, I'll let you get right into it. Did you take the subway there? Yes. You did. Okay, go on. <laughs> okay. It's kind of cool, though, actually. So this is the one in Brooklyn, right? It's in Brooklyn, yeah. and it's in an old subway station that they've just turned into this because they don't use it anymore. And the cool part is there's like the, the boring museum part where you like learn about the constructing of the tunnels and stuff. But then you go downstairs, and they've just got one of every kind of subway car that they've ever had on the New York subway. And yeah. that, that, that part's actually kind of cool because you can see sort of all the way back these really old subway cars and how they were all laid out. That's a little and, bit hoarder, kind of. Is it? <laughs> it's, it's a little hoarder, you know. Is, and is, every is, once in a while, they have an anniversary and they pull out this old subway car and you get to ride it for a yeah. little while. That's true. You get they signs, they'll the pull, pull into your station and yeah. you're like, oh, look how charming. And then you're like, great, we can't fit on this, jerks. <laughs> yeah, the very first ones, they were like trains, like the, you know, like Metro North or whatever. So they only had doors at either end. Actually, Metro North's not even that way anymore. You can just imagine how slow they were to get in and out of versus now where like the whole side opens. I feel like if it were me, I would have like the current subway car and then I just make stuff up. Like the one before that I'd have like where there's two guys and like a stick in between like a seesaw they push to make it go on the tracks and just hope kids would believe that was the prior generation. There are some really old ones. Yeah. Okay. So tell me this, you guys, are you allowed to say stack anymore? Like lamp stack or the Microsoft stack or? Only ironically. Really? No, no. People still say it. Yeah, people they do. Say they that, talk right? about stacks. That's not like a, an old thing. In fact, if you're really cool, you make up a new acronym for your own made-up stack. Your own made-up stack. I was at Microsoft last week to talk to them. And in particular, there's a conference coming up called Microsoft Connect. It's an online conference. It's actually Connect. Is it And then left banana, right banana. No, it's... You see how that's confusing. Yeah, it's the developer. It's a new developer conference. It's on 100% online. Right, David? You're speaking at that, right? I'm not speaking. But you're doing the same thing I did, which is you're making a little promo... Yeah, and I might walk out on stage and for like 30 seconds 
I have a stage. I'm a prop, not a speaker. I'm confused. You just said it's 100% online, and David's got himself walking out. Have you made a little okay, okay. diorama, a David, sta- with a doll it's of like, yourself? That you're it's gonna... online, but they have a stage, and Nick actually went to it last year. He said that you like yeah. instead of regular chairs, they have like sofas you sit in. And Okay, that's, so, that's yeah. really it's, nice. like, it's pretty fancy. It sounds incredibly exotic. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. Sofas? Who thought of that? So we've been yeah. using the Microsoft Stack, and not really the Stack for a long time, but they were trying to record a little video of me saying this. And they kept saying, no, don't say stack. We're trying, we're not allowed to say stack anymore. They thought this was very oh, important. Really? <laughs> I don't know why somebody told them to say, stop saying stack. The Microsoft stack. I, I think it's so maybe not a thing they... anymore because they just work with all this other open source stuff. So it's just like. Yeah, they don't choose. want to imply you either on Microsoft or on Linux. They want, it's like you can pick and choose and you can be on right. this piece. of. Maybe I guess they use, figured and you can you're use, probably not going to be all on Microsoft. You can use C Sharp on Linux now and all this stuff. Yeah. The other thing I want to comment on, I actually did this in Redmond, Washington. This is funny. Redmond is, is like a whole city that is now just became the name of a company. You know, it's sort of like people, <laughs> there was a period where people would say Armonk and that just meant IBM or. Armonk up in Westchester? Yeah. I didn't know that. That used to just oh, mean oh. IBM. That the campus And now was. Redmond just means Microsoft. Well, it's like uh, Cupertino. Yeah. Cupertino. Is anything besides Apple? Apple? I, don't, yeah. I don't believe so. No, I mean, there's other. No, there's, there's the Mountain View. Cupertino False. IHOP and there's a. You know, in which is a place you can stay across the street from Apple. Okay. <laughs> so the other thing I want to comment is that I went to be interviewed for Channel 9, which is probably already, by the time you're hearing this podcast, it's probably already been Aired. on the air. Do you all know where the name Channel 9 comes from? I don't, actually. It came after Channel 8? It's, yes, no, it's the, <laughs> used to be like 10,000 10, years ago when they gave you the little headsets on the airplane to listen to music on United Airlines. If you turned it on Channel 9, you could hear the pilot talking to the tower. Oh, cool. Oh, I didn't know so that. That was, that's oh. where that came from. That was back when the headsets were like this weird like Y-shaped thing, and there were like yeah. two like, like foam tubes, tubes that you kind of stuck in your ears. And every time you're like, <laughs> yeah. this looks gross already, and then yeah, you're yeah, stuck yeah. in your ears. No, they squishy. replaced the foam for every passenger, but then the Why tubes- think that? It's weird. How, what, what were they thinking? The sound was like literally pumped through these- flexible straws it from looked like the it was a straw seat. and they had a speaker on the other end and they just hooked the other end of the straw up to it so the yeah. straw would kind of guide it to where you sat and on the plane they didn't have to replace the yeah. speaker with every passenger yeah. they could just replace the straw yeah they were gross anyhow the channel, nine, channel 9 studio at microsoft headquarters in redmond, redmond. i was about to say armonk cupertino is amazing that's just like the nature of being microsoft is you buy like the nicest version of everything and everything is just way overkill like they have a whole building there basically building 25 is like hey this is the Channel 9 Studios. And you go in there and it's like a really wealthy TV station or TV network or something. Lots of little robot camera people walking around, driving around. And robot camera people? Wait, what? <laughs> so hang on. There's a lot of ways to go with this. They don't have camera operators. They have like little robots that drive around, sort of like- This is like- They have cameras. <laughs> wait, wait what? Still, the camera guy is actually a robot of some yeah, sort. Yeah, yeah. And they might have wait. like- They had they probably had wait, nine, what? I think, in the studio. Yeah. Because it's Robot cameras? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, robot cameramen or persons. I didn't want to say, persons? I didn't want to use that word. Yeah. Camera persons? Yeah, because they're not men. They're robots. Camera. Yeah. I'm so confused. They could be female robots for all you know. They could. I'm picturing <laughs> C-3PO holding a camera. Is that right? Anyway, it was insane. That was my experience of the week. And then they told me not to say stack. So go ahead and watch the video on channel nine. I think I still said stack a couple of times. Oh, the company now are just overflow. Is that the idea? Ooh. <laughs> no, this is good. This is good. As companies stop using stack generically and it becomes a less well-known generic term, we can sue the pants off anybody who uses it. Okay. Good for us. It's a good new monetization stream. <laughs> let's sue everybody. Wait, what? No, nah, let's not. <laughs> I got another idea. Don't worry idea. about it, Joel. We got this. We Hang got on, this. I got another idea. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what's, your, what's your idea? 
Well, it's not ready yet. The other okay. one, the suing everyone I felt was fully formed <laughs> we could talk about. <sighs> All right. So as you know, we're trying to improve the podcast bit by bit. I know we only have one listener, but we're trying to make it better than every week. It's going to be a little bit better. We're we adding care segments. about you, Sarah. <laughs> yes, we're adding segments. This week's segment that we're adding is called Stump Nick Craver. The new segment. You guys ready for this? Ready. Okay, here's how it works. We're going to call up Nick Craver on the phone. Right now. Right now. Okay. And he will have 60 seconds to answer five questions about servers. Okay. okay. But can he like phone a friend or poll anybody or? Oh, no. yeah. Lifelines. No. no, he's got to no, use his, no like out of, out of no, the brain of no, Nick Craver, we're going to do this. Stop it. Stop it. We're just calling him <laughs> up and he's going to answer. I think the rules should always be firmly established okay. in advance. Okay. We give okay. him five questions. Okay. He's got to answer them. Our job is to stump him. If he answers all questions perfectly, he wins. We have a prize. What is I don't remember what the prize is. Ilana, what is his prize? The prize is a six-month supply of Clorox toilet wands brought to you by Clorox. Clorox. Bleachy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Clorox wands. I'm sure you can. Uh, I have a question about this prize. Yeah. I have okay. a question. Yeah. What does a six-month supply <laughs> of toilet wands <laughs> Look like because I feel one. like I go through <laughs> one, an average of less than one toilet wand every six right. months. Multiple questions like what kind of toilet wand, like frequency use are they assuming? I have another question: Are these the little like sponges soaked in bleach that you put on a stick and then you switch then around? You, yeah, and then you clean your toilet. And then you're like, oh my god, that was so effortless. And then you realize you have to somehow dispose of that <laughs> toilety, bleachy, squishy thing. Oh, and that's even harder it's than like, the no, amount yeah. of effort that you save by yeah, not yeah, using it. it's like, no disposal. touch. <laughs> no, go nowhere near your toilet. They're totally disposable, which sounds wonderful until you have to dispose okay, of this okay. disgusting... I think, I think it's a wonderful prize, and Nick probably has all Thank this Thank you for sponsoring our podcast. That he needs. People. All right, Carlos, let's get Nick on the line. Hello? Hey, Nick, are you ready to play Stump Nick Craver? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Sounds interesting. As you know, you've got exactly 60 seconds to answer five questions about servers. And if you get them all right, you'll win some toilet brushes. All right. All right. Yeah, are you ready? All right, Carlos, start the clock. Here we go. Question number one Which USB SATA cable would you take on a trip if you needed 10 GPS? StarTech, USB 3.1. About 18 bucks on Amazon. Correct. We're going to play <laughs> the sound of a server. I'm going to play the sound of a server booting up. Identify the server. Carlos, let's play the sound. <laughs> All right, that should be enough. Sounds like a dying HP Perliant DL380. Uh, yeah. More specific? Yes, yes. Gen 8, uh, Xeon E5 is probably 2650s, those um, SQL servers. Version. Perfect version two. Okay. And <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of GPU did it have? Uh, 530 FLR, SFP plus. Correct. What happens to a high voltage dim if you plug it into a low voltage slot? Nothing. Runs just fine. Okay. Correct. In the Trick SQL question. Server Enterprise Edition with per core licensing, on the user agreement, page 26, what is the 14th word on the page? <laughs> <laughs> Notwithstanding. Correct. On the 12G or 13G, tell. Dell powered servers with iJack firmware version 2.10. The CMOS battery status in the OMSA is shown as unknown. What do you do? Update OMSA. Okay, yeah, but what version do you update it to? NATO or above. No, I'm sorry. That was. <laughs> no, get out. You lose. Get him off the line. That was pathetic. That was six questions. That was pathetic. All right. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, Nick. Oh, okay. If you're wondering what it's like to work at Stack Overflow, you can find our job listings here. At... <laughs> uh, okay. 
That was something graver. One minute tech review. <laughs> wait, wait. What are we going to do with all those toilet ones? Can I have some? Next next week. Next week. We'll do another. You only need one. We'll do you this a monthly quite... segment. David, I'm telling you, once you're done, you don't know what to do next. It's a very sad moment. Do you have a one minute tech review for I do. Us? It is time for my one minute tech review. My one minute tech review. Okay. Remember how I talked about you should get the electrician to install a bunch of USB outlets yes, in I, your house? Yes, I have one Last now. week. Oh, yeah. Really? I do. You mean since last week you took my recommendation? Let's just say I one. have one now. <laughs> okay so after your electrician does that they will inevitably switch the hot and the neutral or they'll forget to ground it or they'll do something terrible and the way you check them is you get this device that costs six bucks which is called a outlet tester it's a little usually yellow thing yep. there are gfsti versions you might as well get that it's the same price lights up right and it lights up and it has three lights two yellow and one red i don't know why mm. and then there's a little chart on it that tells you what the combinations of lights mean and all I know is that you want two yellow lights, and it tells you, like, if the hot and neutral are swapped, or if one of them is missing, or if the neutral right. is connected to the ground, or every, literally every mistake that an electrician can make. And if you go around the house after your electrician is done wiring it up, you'll usually find, you know, seven or eight mistakes, and then they'll think that you're magical. They'll be like, what, what drew what? So, GFCI Outlet Tester, go ahead and get one from Amazon. I have a follow-up question for you. Store. That is my one-minute tech review. So it sounds like you've had some struggles with your outlets after your electrician. My put, electricians, yeah. Put the man who's... Have you tested the electrical outlets in your home, Jay? You yeah. just moved into a new home, if I'm not mistaken. I did, I did. I've tested a couple because you're like wiring stuff, and they, they seem good. I just wonder, is, is your electrician's name doesn't happen to be... Do you go by Taco? Is his name Taco? Because <laughs> I do not use... My dog is not my electrician. I would say if you hire an electrician... No, like, they never get that stuff right. One three outlets is miswired. They, they might be more of a chef or perhaps an accountant they of some sort. just don't care. They just hook it all up. And then they're like, they'll be in some, you know place and there will be no ground available and they'll just say screw it i'm not going to go drag another wire here just get ground it's they had one job i know no they have lots of jobs come I guess on you're that's right. your I guess complete, you're complete right. misuse I guess you're they right. have one job oh in any can case I, can i change my rant <laughs> to my, <laughs> my misuse of the english language about, i assume okay wonderful about microsoft's banning of the word stack my new rant <laughs> is going to be the overuse of you had one job to describe really Pretty much anybody that has any job in the world. <laughs> Can I just point out Including that... electricians who have about 700. This segment jobs. is called Joel's Rant, singular. Uh, and I'd like to end it by pointing out, you had one job, sir. Okay, it's time to prepare a constitution for Stack Overflows. It's Ooh. time for our weekly survey. Excellent. Each week, we bring you a proposal, and you, our listeners, will decide on whether that proposal becomes a part of the new constitution for Stack Overflow. So let's start with results from last time. Last time, I believe the question was, when you are at the supermarket and you buy wrapped food like a Kit Kat bar, can you eat it before you pay? And with the result of last week's Constitution question, here's news editor Ilana Itzhaki. So we're at 83% for pro. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Wait, pro means? Pro, you can. <laughs> pro you can stealing eat the food. candy. That is very high. We rarely get 83%. So shoplifting is okay if you undo it a little bit Astonishing. That's no, okay. Not, That's, that no means at least, like, at least four out of five people voted for this. Yeah. More than that, yeah. Did you do that math in your head? That was awesome. Sounds like five out of six yeah. to me, but okay. <laughs> so I really like Jonathan Lissick at J-L-I-S-I-C. Pro, the only problem is fitting on the scales after snacking by the bulk bins. Ooh. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't know if we really allowed you to oh, just stand we, there and shovel things from the bulk bins. Did we set a limit on how many of these you can eat? <laughs> it, does, it seems like a point where what you're in fact staging is some sort of stunt at the supermarket. <laughs> Rather You're allowed to bring out anything act. as long as it's inside your belly. <laughs> I thought this was one of them all you can stuff in your belly You know buffets. what we didn't ask is whether you're allowed to just eat from the salad bar as long as you weigh yourself before and after. <laughs> using <laughs> <laughs> Okay. 
Today's Constitution question. And here's what you do. I'm going to ask the question, and then you go ahead and you go on the Twitter and you post with hashtag StackOverflowPodcast, either pro or con, and you can win a sticker. Here's, here's the question for this week. Are you allowed to stand over the IT person while you wait for them to reset your password? Okay, so your <laughs> password is somehow broken. You go to the IT department. You ask the IT person to reset it. Are you oh, allowed no. to just sort of stand there and wait for them to do it? No, don't be, don't be. It's a trick question. It's a trick question. A, you are supposed tricks. to email help desk. And if you go to the IT place in person, yeah. they can hit you or beat you. No, or, they'll no, help, but you, I mean, you're they'll help be, you faster. They, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they well, what, when I email it in, there's all these other people in front of me. So I yeah, just walk right. over there because then that's I'm right, right exactly. there. Exactly. Then you pretty much have to stand over them. My, com- my whole internet connection just got cut off as I said that, I'm sure. <laughs> but I mean, sometimes what happens is you stand over them and it's taking an awkwardly long amount of time and they're not responding or reacting to you in any way because- Is this supposed uh, to be a hypothetical question, Joel? All of our questions are for the Constitution, it's for the future of Stack Overflow. So wait, so the question is, do you stand there while they do it or do you like walk away and then- It's really more wait. like, are you allowed to stand over them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think pro is you stand over them. Okay. Con is you have to go back to your desk and wait for them to notify you. You could decide to walk to the supermarket and eat some candy bars <laughs> and then come back. You're mixing. You're mixing things. All right. So post your answer to Twitter using the hashtag pound Stack Overflow podcast, a pound from all the Kit Kat bars you ate last week with either pro or con and your explanation, which should be short and convincing. It has to fit in 140 characters. The best explanation, whether you are on the winning side or the losing side, will be read on next week's podcast and you will win a fabulous Stack Overflow sticker and a couple of toilet brushes courtesy of the Stack Overflow podcast. Okay, I'm done. I'm, now I'm, we're really going to have to send people segments. toilet brushes. Now you've promised that. <laughs> really? Okay, there will be no toilet brush. On this one, you're just going to get some stickers. We have a guest this week? We do. Not only do we have a guest, she is helping us kick off an exciting new segment here on the Stack Overflow podcast known as Developer Stories. Two so, new segments. Uh, longtime listeners may recall that last week we talked about our uh, new feature developer story, which actually shipped today. Maybe not for you, people living in the future, but for us here at the day of recording. And one of the central features that we talked about before was how developer stories essentially let developers kind of show off whatever they're proud of, what they've done the things that are kind of interesting about them, the stuff they've built. And we won't keep talking about the feature. The actual point of this segment is more to bring on developers who have cool or interesting stories and hear from them, what they've been working on, how they got interested in computers and kind of whatever they do with them. And we are pleased and delighted to have Emoji Miller with us here today. Emoji, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. So super quick, Emoji is a data scientist with over a decade decade, wow, we're old, of experience in computational intelligence and works on data-driven machine learning stuff and is also a CS PhD candidate currently at UC Berkeley. And also while in the program, worked at Google's nonprofit investment in computer science education. I know you've actually done a lot of work around education. I want to mention how Omoju first actually kind of caught our eye. She had a, you, you had a tweet storm that we thought was just super awesome because it, it sort of represents the moment that we get super excited about. So I'll just, I'll just read it and then we'll let you talk a little bit yourself about how you got here and what, what you've been working on. So Mojo tweeted out, sometime last week, I crossed a milestone. I went from Stack Overflow consumer to Stack Overflow provider. I feel very proud of myself. I've used Stack Overflow for years, but it never occurred to me to wonder who was answering the questions. It was just the crowd. I hadn't found a niche that I felt personally vested in to add to its corpus of knowledge, but that changed with Python's ML stack. 
When I started caring, I was too scared that I wouldn't be able to add value, that I'm just coding in the corner. Too scared my answers wouldn't pass review, but then something changed. A friend brought an idea to me, the idea of living an intentional generative technical life. I hadn't realized that my technical life was extractive. I just took, took other people's knowledge and built on it. I didn't give back. All the knowledge I had wasn't being additive. I started thinking of what it means to be a full participant in a technical community. I didn't want to put myself out there technically for fear of attack because of all the shit that comes with being underrepresented, but eventually my desire to be generative won. It's okay for me to own the knowledge I have, support our technical community, and make the whole richer. And this really, this resonated. I mean, we were talking about it at the company. Part of it is obviously, if I may say much, it's beautifully written. It almost reads, it's prose, but it reads almost poetic. But it kind of captures, I think, both what makes the whole engine work, where people decide they want to give back and contribute and be part of that. But it also, I think, touches on some of the challenges we face, right? Where people feel like they're not going to be appreciated, or they're not going to be welcome, or it's going to be hard, or they're not the right person to answer. And it was just such a perfect sort of moment of transition of what we kind of dream of that we got excited. And so we were talking about it here. And so I'd reached out to Emoji to ask if she was interested in being on the podcast, in part because when I looked you up, I saw all the awesome things you were doing. So if I can, I'd love to start a little bit. We're talking about people's stories and how they got into computer science, programming, whatever it is, data science in your case. Can you share a little bit about sort of maybe when you were younger and sort of first became drawn to to computers and technical stuff? Yeah. So a little bit of a correction. I've actually finished my PhD now. Congratulations. Can I call you Dr. Emoju? You may call me Dr. Emoju. Congratulations. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. So I got into technical stuff. I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. And my high school actually had computer science in it. And this was a long time ago. This was like around 1994, 1995. The computer science class was rather boring. I really was not interested in it. We're talking about multiplexes, ALUs. It wasn't registers. It just wasn't my thing. When I came to the States a year later, the internet had just started becoming somewhat mainstream it was at the university level and that was what literally changed my complete understanding of what i wanted to do with my life i am an avid reader i love reading a lot so that meant i did incredible amounts of research at the library which wasn't always fun because you had to <laughs> be at the library and another part of me is i like fashion a lot and lots of european italian designers and I found myself in the United States where I was like away from Europe. In my mind, this is in 1996, the internet became that gateway that I felt could marry all my needs together. I could do my research on it. I could go shopping on it, even though e-commerce wasn't a thing quite yet. And I knew eventually I could do work in it. I was so fascinated by that idea that I wanted to be a computer science major. I wanted to be part of whatever it is that was gonna create that world. And that was it. I never looked back. That was it. It was just like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do with my life. That's sort of amazing. Although I think my favorite part is how the internet saved you from the cultural fashion wasteland that is the United States, <laughs> where there was no real access to anything fashionable. I understand. But we it have, opened up like new TJ doors. Right? in every city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I literally do not understand. So I want to come back to sort of your experience. Young, You wrote a blog post that I really enjoyed. But tell us a little bit about your time in Google. That was one of the many places I think you were working a lot on sort of how education works in the computer science space or in the technical space for folks. Yeah, at some point in my career, I was doing my master's in cognitive computing, which I really, really like. And I started going more to international conferences. 
it was at that point that I realized I'm the only person in these spaces that look like me. And I couldn't understand why everybody else wasn't like super psyched about this. To me, I thought this was like the most thing in the world. What's wrong with everybody else? Maybe I'm just a weirdo. This is me at a Justin Bieber concert, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, I decided that I actually wanted to do some investigations around human cognition, around computation. I felt like perhaps people just didn't even know how to get into it. Maybe they were just overwhelmed. And so that's what brought me to Berkeley. And during that work, somehow I got in touch with Google or Google got in touch with me because there was a big problem, as we all know, in Silicon Valley. One of the biggest challenges is not necessarily just around women and underrepresented minorities. It's actually growing the entire pie of people who participate in technology. Even though you may not know that from everybody watching HBO Silicon Valley and everything is trending right now, you may not know that, but our field is still lacking a huge amount of people. And so what Google wanted to do through its nonprofit arm was figure out ways where they could actually direct some of their capital to finding entrepreneurial solutions at nonprofits to drive in this issue. And some of the people we worked with were code.org. Yep. It's a fourfold challenge. Most students don't know what computer science is because there isn't a lot of computer science at the high school level. They are under production of degrees, even at the collegiate level of computer science. There are not enough women and there are not enough women and people of color and people with disabilities. So it's like four separate different things you'd have to solve. We partner with organizations like code.org, bringing computer science at the high school level and also making it count. And we're partnering with organizations like Girls Who Code, Code 2040, people who are actually doing very, very interesting things and approaching this problem in innovative ways and also very mission aligned. And it was absolutely a fun experience and the best part of it was getting to work with all kinds of people within the organization and also with partners. That's awesome. And so while you were studying this, I mean, I think it's easy to oversimplify this. And one of the things we try to keep reminding ourselves is sort of there's no right answer and you just keep working at it and try and get better. But does it feel to you when you talk about sort of the problem at the high school level, are there things that are equally important to trying to get kids involved in technology and coding early? Like, are there things you've found in your studies sort of I mean, obviously, there's a lot about sort of just making the environment generally more hospitable, but I'm just wondering if you've come across things that are maybe not talked about as much as they should be in how either an individual company or the industry can continue to sort of adjust and make changes. One of the most important aspects of what we do is that our art and our science can actually have real impact in our everyday lives. We build tools to solve our own problems. The way that we think about computer science at the high school level is extremely pedagogical. It's not a market-based solution to driving problem solving. It's just transferring knowledge from some adults to the minds of children. Whereas if it was based around building products for the children to solve their own problems, it completely changes your desire to want to take part in that space. So it's not about getting A's or getting a great grade in AP or going to a great college. It's actually about using computation to build product to solve tangible real life problems. And even in the high school space, there's so many problems that the students are facing that they could actually build solutions for themselves. But that approach is sorely lacking. I mean, essentially there you're talking about going from the abstract, right? The concept and sort of the theory 
into the practical. You can build things, you can create, you can do cool stuff. Is that, am I getting it? You're getting it, absolutely. Just that simple. If you have a plant in your classroom and you guys want to water the plant, it could be an Internet of Things project. Figure out how to actually create some kind of thing that helps you to water your plant, monitor the temperature of the soil, and figure out what needs to happen, and you guys can program it to do that. You do sound very Silicon Valley right now that you're trying to disrupt <laughs> water plant planting. watering in a classroom. That, that definitely fits into my stereotype. Yeah, but at least it's not like an on-demand app where you have to pay and push a button on your app and exactly. orders the plant. To make plant world a better place. I mean, it's not a business idea. It's just a make the world better idea. That's a real problem that I have. I travel and I want to take care of my plants. I want to know that they're getting... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does this work for dogs? Oh, this does not... Yeah, I don't think you can do this for dogs. Does not work for dogs? Cats, though. But this is really cool. This is a really interesting point that I know I did a little bit of computer science in high school and it was very... It didn't have anything to do with solving any sort of real problem that I might have in my life. It was very much like, here's how to, you know, dog inherits from animal uh, kind of standard stereotypical education. I, I really like this idea of sort of focusing it more around, let's learn how to, you know, actually build something that you could use. I also see from my perspective, what would have made that really cool is for it to be something that I can then, you know, show off to my friends and say, hey, look at this thing that I built that, that actually does something. Oh, yeah, that one is huge because that was one of the major things for the Hour of Code, where students could build like a little app on a mobile phone in an hour, and then they could go show it off to their friends. And mm -hmm. that was very, very successful. And it got a lot of people engaged in building and having a desire to want to build even more. Yeah, it's almost virality to it then, because then they're going and showing their friends who are now suddenly interested in learning how to code, and then they're showing their friends. And that was almost the, the only equivalent of that in high school was sort of TI-83 calculator programming, but that was yeah. <laughs> not what they were teaching in the class. And that's not fun. <laughs> no, it was not fun. I thought it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, Emoji, you got a blog post I want to sort of recommend to our audience You'll share a little bit sort of about the experiences that led to it. So if you want to actually check out Emoji's blog, uh, generally it's emojimiller.com. There's a number of good posts on there. But My Tears Movies in the Age of Obama is yeah. one. I love this post for a couple of reasons. It's very well written. It's a great post. But one of the things that spoke to me was I do like that you're a Shonda fan. I have pretty much yet to see a Shonda Rhimes show that I do not love. They continue to amaze me. But one of the things you get into here is sort of the importance of sort of seeing people like you in certain types of roles, like for young people especially. You speak to your personal experience. And this is something we candidly struggle with a little bit around here because we continue to have an instinctual belief, I think, and this, this seems to support it, that one of the things that is really great for young women, people of color, people with different abilities, et cetera, is to be able to see role models, right, of this is what somebody like me can be when they grow up. This is a viable future for someone who looks like me, feels like me, has my experiences. Although positions like that are interesting to think about, but they're not great spaces for people like me or David or Joel to help a lot, which is especially with being cognizant of how challenging it can be for some women being on the internet and being in public spaces. We don't want to be running around telling them they have to do that, but it feels like an important issue with any underrepresented group. The yeah. more they see that, the sort of more that a kid's naturally going to be like, maybe that's who I want to be when I grow up, or not even a kid, you know, young people. This post really, I thought, hit that in a very sort of really cool personal way. And it gets into some of the specific stuff. And I just wonder if you share a little bit of sort of what your experience is. You know, when you're talking about Katherine Johnson in particular, I thought it was really kind of cool. I mean, the fact that there's finally attention being put onto her life, et cetera. So I'm a huge movie fan, huge. And I think also I am the kind of person that had a very different non-stereotypical upgrade bringing. Sure. Toys that were not gender specific, 
I had planes that I could fly down the street. I had like pet little toy robotic little rats with springs inside their stomach so you could stretch them. And it was like a yo-yo. Thank you. I'm going to have nightmares tonight now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't regular rats have springs in their stomach? <laughs> I had Legos. I had Barbies. I had Easy Bake Oven. So basically in our house, when we were playing, it was like we were building worlds. So you have to do the engineering to figure out how to build your building. You have to figure out what was you're going to be a power generation supply. You have to figure out after you built the house, then what are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? So it was a very holistic thing. Wow. And maybe because of that kind of upbringing, I have the ability to imagine worlds that don't exist and just invent them. However, for a lot of people, they're bound in their imagination by what they've seen. And a lot of the ways where, in which we consume knowledge about who we can be is actually true media. And if you keep on seeing images that don't reflect a certain gamut of who you can be, then you have a very narrow view of what you think you can actually do in the world, especially when it comes to technical professions. Absolutely. First of all, there are not enough technical professions in media. And when they do come into media, they are often very dystopic and negative. Yeah. It's that black guy in Die Hard. Like these are hackers. They're not necessarily doing good things. These are people who are being destructive. Another part of that is the theme around AI recently, AI in movies. I'm yet to see like a nice AI movie where it's happily ever after. It's <laughs> often bad things are going to happen. It's going to be Skynet. We're going to be slaves to the robot and it's going to be horrible. Yeah. However, with people pushing boundaries and telling different kinds of stories, we're beginning to see a small but significant shift in perceptions of what is acceptable for a woman, for a person of color, for men. And it's very, very interesting. Shondaland is a very good example of the kind of world that we are all hoping that we can live in. It's a world where it's non-identifiable. Every kind of person is in that world. And that's the kind of thing that we want more and more in engineering. Katherine Johnson's story was, it's an incredible story and she's still alive. This woman was a human computer. Her whole job was doing computations because the machines weren't fast enough then. And it was her computations that powered NASA's, powered men to the moon. And this is a woman of color. And it's not just, oftentimes they highlight one person like Katherine Johnson and you think she's just like a one-off. But yeah. then when you start thinking about it, she probably had friends. She had her whole crew. Like it wasn't just one person. It was a slew of people. And there are many of these people. We don't know who they are. We don't know their names. We don't know their stories. But they actually exist and they've always been there. We are at the golden age of narrative. Thanks to Netflix. Thanks to YouTube. Thanks to HBO. People are beginning to take larger risk in telling these kinds of stories and giving more of an honest representation of what life can be and more importantly, around technical professions. So I was really, really excited when Catherine's story finally became a big screen phenomenon. It's also like the longer stories. Like I think something that Hollywood has to do in order to tell a short story is use stereotypes. If you have a 20 minute sitcom and you need to get a programmer character in, you don't have a lot of time expose the character, you're going to be tempted to find the most, you know, brutal stereotype you can find, stick that in there so the audience knows what's going on. But where you have these sort of deeper plots, these, these HBO shows that last for five seasons, you have time to develop actual real characters. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And Google was a big part in helping to do some of that work because I helped found within the organization something called Computer Science and Media, mm -hmm. whose task is to actually start telling these kinds of stories about who we are. That's great. So that people can actually see who we all are, both the male, both the female, because we are more than stereotypes. Every male engineer is not a hacker. I would, however, like it if people would continue to think that I can mess with their life using my computer. I mean, that would be a good thing. <laughs> I don't need my parents will call me up and say that they lost a file and they deleted it permanently and that they need me to get it back for them. And I hate to tell them that I can't do that. Uh, Just to be clear, yeah. you want to be assumed to be like the to have skinny, the skinny but spectacled black hacker guy from Die Hard, right? Do I understand that correctly? I was really thinking of River Phoenix and Sneakers. Sorry, I have different role models. Sneakers is a great movie. Yeah, That's but a really I good just want to be like the, like nobody knows what I'm doing, but I can just do all kinds of stuff and manipulate all kinds of things, except for my parents' deleted files. I have no power over them. <laughs> Mr. Robot. <laughs> Mr. Robot's pretty good, actually. I don't know what you thought about that. I thought that was kind of wonderful in terms of getting the technology correct, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like Mr. Robot was like the second coming of Fight Club. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great. A little bit. A little I did bit. not yeah, make that, that connection, but kind of. it's very similar vibe, yeah. I think, in, on multiple levels. It's got that sort of Dark dystopia. It's got that also that David Fincher, like the colors all off a little bit. Yeah. Mr. Robot, I think, is definitely worth watching. Great and it, it is a show that is possibly the only thing I've ever seen that involves computers or hacking in any way that did not drive me that crazy sort of gets every it. single minute of watching it. So we'd recommend Mr. Robot to a friend. Okay. So, Emoji, what are you doing now? So you're a doctor now, so you're probably going to, I don't know, help sick people get less sick or something. No, 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 wait. That's is that not how That's not how It's a PhD. Works. It's a doctor of philosophy. That may not be true. Anymore. Oh. So wait, she so you're, hang on, hang on. <laughs> you're now a PhD. You're a data scientist. And I'm interested in whatever you're doing next. David, aren't we hiring a data scientist here? Is that true? We are, in fact, hiring a data scientist. We are. So. But unfortunately, anybody that's on the podcast is disqualified. <laughs> is that, that's not in the Constitution. <laughs> oh, let's do that. That's a Constitution question for next week. Okay. So what's Sorry. next for me is I'm in the interview process now for data science positions in industry. Oh, that's us. That is us. That is actually us. I take it back. We will hire you. <laughs> As I've told Joel before, you can't make job offers on the air, but we'd love to have you talk to some folks here if you're actually interested. But sorry, we cut you off. Go on, Emojo. I apologize. It's been a very, very interesting experience because without job searching, I wouldn't be talking to this many companies. And by talking to a lot of companies, it's interesting. I've gotten a very good idea of who is where and what are the major challenges around data that most corporations are facing. There are two kinds of data science. There's like the machine learning data science programmer that just basically builds models that cannot be interpreted and puts them back into a product. And then there's a data scientist who does decision support. Mm -hmm. I really like doing decision support, doing data-driven decisions around business metrics to help optimize for what the corporation is really looking for. Because the reason why I love that a lot is oftentimes the companies I'm interested in are using data that human beings generated. So by doing analysis and machine learning on those data sets gives you a deeper understanding of what makes us human and why we behave the way we behave, and the kind of quirks that we actually have. So it's endlessly fascinating. It's like you're like an investigator. It's like you're Sherlock Holmes, yeah. and I hate to be Sherlock Holmes forever. And it's sort of like the next level of kind of anthropology. You have this anthropological data set you can understand people about. Absolutely. And it's so much fun and fascinating. So before we let you go, I want to first thank you and say, I think I can honestly say you are the most interesting guest we've ever had on. To be fair, 
The competition has been weak, but you've been phenomenal. Right. What else, if anything, what do you want to plug? Anything you're working on? Any sites, programs? What do you want our listeners, a lot of them technical, to know about, check out, read, other than your own blog, which we mentioned? And also, if you want to follow Moju on Twitter, she is her name, at Emoju Miller. O-M-O-J-U. Uh, and yes. Miller is spelled like Miller. Oh, I saw. I was It'll be linked to the show like notes. It's usually spelled, you know, yeah. here in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> what else would you point folks toward? It doesn't have to be yours, just that you think is worth exposing more people to. So the first one is I'll be speaking at Grace Hopper Friday the 21st. Excellent. Ethics of machine learning, moral machines. This is a topic I would point a lot of people towards to actually start reading about all the kinds of areas where machine learning is getting into. For example, predictive policing. Wow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, Future we're- Future crime. Exactly. It's like, this is the part that scares people, but better <laughs> to know what's happening than to find out in the worst way possible. So many of our cities, we have a lot of cameras all over the place. We have sure. massive data sets that goes back to the 1800s, and we can then build models on this data set to figure out what's happening in places and to predict places where crime is going to occur. So it's almost like pre-crime. And there are clearly ethical challenges around this, around the curation of the data sets and around the kind of findings that come out of these models and around the fact that sometimes these models are so complicated that we can't interpret them and we don't know how they came to the conclusions that they came to. So I encourage a lot of people to actually start reading about data science in reality, especially around predictive policing. Where would someone get started? So other than your talk at Grace Hopper sounds like an awesome start. We'll put a link to that in yeah, the show notes. But anything online as far as people who want to learn more about that? Follow Back Channel on Medium. Back Channel on Medium. Got it. Got it. We will link to them in the notes as well. And I will follow Stephen Levy specifically for Back Channel at Medium. He writes a lot about the latest in machine learning in big corporations. Awesome. And he writes about it in a way that you can easily absorb without having to get into the deep technical weeds. And if you want to go deep into the technical weeds, there are all the papers are available. But he's just like a good surface level. What's happening? What are people thinking about? I feel like you understand me already, Emoju. Yes, that surface level is where at least I will start. So let me just say thank you again. It's been phenomenal having you on. I will encourage you, my shameless plug, as you're engaging in your job search, I suspect there's lots of people reaching out to you, but you could use the developer story to show off the most perfect version of you. But in any How case, convenient. thank you for coming on. Thanks for sharing some of what you've been working on. And if thank we you very can much, ever Emoju. help you in any way, please please reach out. And in fact, maybe we'll touch base about the role here and see if you're interested in talking more. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you. Take care, you. Thanks. It's time for the news. Stack Overflow recently updated its company salary calculator to include international salary rates, new positions, and a 2016 market adjustment. Go to stackoverflow.com forward slash company forward slash salary forward slash calculator to see one, how one much. Those, I think it's a backslash, actually. You can't interrupt no, the newsreader. What slashes. the heck? It's like well, you can go to the site. It's like the news. I'm it's... putting that on the Constitution for a question for next week. <laughs> I'm allowed to interrupt the newsreader. Go to the site to see how much you could make if you worked at Stack Overflow. Yes. And a reminder that this is not a salary survey. I think some people sort of thought, oh, this is what salaries are in certain markets. And as it turns out, as we discovered, but we knew this, we might pay a little bit more in some of the international markets than the market yes. rate. Heads exploded seeing what we're offering people <laughs> in certain hard. countries. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the point here, if people got a little confused. We're going to maybe try to make it a little more obvious that this is what we pay, not what we think the, the going rate is. is. Quote, unquote. 
market rate is in any given country. We're literally going to get sued by our VCs right after this podcast goes live. Pay how we have much? this salary calculator we talked about a couple of weeks ago that lets yeah. you see, we use a system here at Stack Overflow, lets you see what we would pay at Stack Overflow based on a certain skill level, which you can, we give a guideline. We try to have super it. transparent, super yep. predictable salaries. And so there's this calculator, so we might as well put it online, we thought. And we expanded what recently wrong, to include our international rate, which we have for places we have had developers work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now you can go in there. Before it just had US rates. Now you can go in and you can choose the country you're in and kind of a limited list of places we have people working because that's where we have a rate for that country. We kind of figure it out when we hire somebody in a country what the right rate is. Uh, this is going to be sad when we lower everybody's salary and we have to go in there and update. Well, these things, international is always weird, yeah. right? Because you've got Super this... weird. Not weird. I mean, most people just Not, pay it's weird market only if you're in America. Yeah. No, that's not no. Right. For one, they have a different word for everything. <laughs> why do they talk like that? <laughs> uh, so here's why people were confused. So one, they were confused that maybe that, oh, we're saying this is the market rate. No, we're saying this is what we pay. And what we pay is based on a couple of things. One, we're a remote company hiring remote workers in these places. So we're not just paying the sort of, you know, what we would be if we were a dev shop in your country, we're paying what, you know, the remote worker, there's sort of a remote worker market because a lot of people we're talking to are also applying to other remote companies in the US. And so we have to pay that kind of market rate. But the second thing and most important one is sort of this idea of fairness. I think there was actually a time in the company where we sort of just paid the market rate in some of these countries. And, you know, when we looked at that and looked at, you know, basically two developers doing the same work, one in the US and one in some other country where the market rate is lower, it felt unfair to be paying them so much less. And so we actually just explicitly adjusted that and said, you know what, we're going to pay a lot closer to the US rate than, you know, I guess whatever the market rate says it is because of this idea of fairness. One of our principles on salaries is we don't make individual salaries public, but if they ever became public, we shouldn't be embarrassed. And we should be able to say, yeah, this is exactly why this person makes this much and nobody should really be freaking out. And so we thought, you know, it's just unfair to be paying people in these other countries significantly, dramatically less than they would make in the US or UK or a country that has high rates. So it's really just this principle of- You could sort of talk about this forever, but the main argument is like, listen, if you live in Berlin or something, you're paying $1,000 a month for a really nice house. So you don't really need to make- you know, the same amount as you need to make if you lived in There's San a cost Francisco of living. and needed $7,000 right. a month. We do do cost of living adjustments, and we don't pay the exact same amount in every single country. Yeah. But the reason we come in significantly higher than market rates is... Because of this worldwide equity concept. Yeah, this worldwide equity concept of fairness. And bum, 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 bum. some of your costs, you know, I don't know, taking into account cost of living is hard. Karl Marx said that we should pay people the minimum amount above the amount that it takes to keep them to stop from starving. Like whatever, in other words, just just like whatever the starvation wage would be plus just enough to keep them from starving. That's, that was his theory. Yes, that is the theory behind Marxism that employers will ultimately pay people only what it takes to keep them from starving. In my experience, a good indicator that you may not have a good, you know, lifestyle guide is if they choose to go with manifesto rather than book (laughs) or thesis or, you know, if it's, if it's a manifesto or if it's stabbed on a door of the world's night. It's tricky. Anyway. So the real takeaway here is if you're looking at the salary calculator and saying, wow, you guys are way overpaying in my country, then you the should apply for correct. a job here. Go ahead and apply for a job. And yes, <laughs> exactly. that's right. And we can maybe, uh, yeah. And you'll be so much happier because you'll be working for a great company. Do we have any uh, openings? On really interesting problems. Besides data scientists. And you'll make more money. There's a few. <sighs> Let's Check move out on our to the next page. next news item, please. If you live in the UK, running a blog over HTTPS could lead to legal trouble. Do not do that. Week. Scotland Yard formally accused a man of terrorist activity. 
In addition to other offenses, the man was specifically charged with, quote, providing instruction or training in the use of encryption programs, researching an encryption program and developing an encrypted version of his blog site, unquote. Critics are concerned that the focus on encryption in these charges could set a precedent resulting in further criminalization of encryption use in the UK. And uh, critics being the pirate party. Yeah. Wait, but wait, 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 wait. Yeah. What he's doing is teaching people how to encrypt things? That's well, what's no, no, he's a terrorist. He is a terrorist. I believe that part was not, <laughs> was not covered so much by the critics of the... <laughs> I see, I see, I see. So as it happens, well, what he's doing does a bit feel again to me, as I yeah. mentioned last week, like math. The way he's doing it, the things he's doing it for. He was happen. also recruiting for Daesh or something. I don't want to okay. speak uh, I see. out of. Uh, In addition to being a terrorist, school. he was teaching people how to encrypt stuff, presumably for the purposes of being a terrorist. Which yeah, made see it. here, count number one is that he belonged to Daesh. This is an intent based crime. This is count like. Count number two is that he was doing terrorist training. This but is like it's okay the to talk to Terrorist training people. was teaching people how to install HTTPS. Preparation for terrorism, which was installing an HTTPS server. So this is sort of a slippery slope argument, right? Joel, how do you feel about, about slippery slope arguments? Pretty soon we're all going to be marrying sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> but to be clear, this is not like one of these things where like they're like, all right, we're, we've slope. now made encryption illegal. This is a little no. more like... They did. Actually, they did make encryption illegal okay. so that when they threw the book at this guy, they could include... It's okay to sell sandwiches, right? But if yeah. you're hired by like a known terrorist organization, they're like, here's the deal. We're terrorists. We're going to do terrorist things. So <laughs> all we need you to do is show up every day. We're going to pay you a salary and you'll make people sandwiches and give us all sandwiches. And then we'll eat these yummy sandwiches and we will feel so not hungry and refreshed when we go to do our terrorist bad things. You are then part of a criminal conspiracy. And so you can be charged with making sandwiches to aid and abed this terrorist effort. That's yeah. what's going on here, essentially. Is he's... Uh, I think they just sort of, this is a specific example where they're kind of groping around for a bunch of things to make this guy sound really bad so that they can throw the book at him when they actually did not have a tremendous amount of evidence other than that he was, quote unquote, a member of a illegal organization, i.e. ISIS. Does anyone think it's kind of funny, like you've gone to the past whenever Scotland Yard is after you? Like, I always feel like I'm in like a Carmen Sandiego, <laughs> Carmen Sandiego yeah. game. Also, or... here's something I don't understand. I it says that the guy is from Cardiff, and that's Wales as far as I know. So the whole thing makes no sense. I think this is a bogus story, and I rate it one star. Next. <laughs> the government of France, France. has officially oh, launched an Uber competitor named Uber. Le Taxi. Uh, it's Uber. What? They didn't go with Uber? Uber. The service oh, comes after Uber. years. The service Uber? comes after years of politicians trying to halt Uber's popularity through regulation. Despite their efforts to curb its use and despite sometimes violent public protests against the company, I don't know Uber, if it was violent so much as traffic jam. <laughs> Uber currently has 1.5 million users in France and 12,000 drivers in Paris itself. So far, 3,000 taxi drivers have signed up for the Le Taxi platform. Le Taxi. And reviews I read said that Le Taxi is terrible. I think you mean, c'est terrible. C'est terrible. De yes. Paris aussi, c'est complètement disgraceable. Complètement excrément. Excrément, c'est caca. Merde, merde. Merde, c'est merde. Way too much. So, Way so too much. I will say this for France. Now you've gone too far. We've taken no. too far. People who actually speak French, their ears are blue. <laughs> it seems like they failed this time, but France was the first place, to my understanding, France. to beat Uber at their own game, right? It was Uber would basically go to a yeah. city and they'd be like, oh, you need medallions to drive cars here. Sure. And Uber would be like, yeah, so we don't really recognize your authority or that law. Like, it seems like a wrong law that doesn't really work that way. Okay. And the city would be like, 
no, no, I assure you, like, we are the city council. The we passed You laws. may not do this. We passed the laws. And they're like, it's weird because our drivers are doing it. So there seems to be some mix up. <laughs> and I don't know. And they would just basically say, no, it's illegal. And they would say, we're going to fine you. And they would say, wait, great. We're going to the people. Just tell us where to send the fines. And yeah. they would just keep paying and paying and paying with, with their with billions the fine, of a dollars. small amount. And it was like, they were, yeah, big, you know. they were real fines. Okay. But they would just pay the fines and ignore the laws. And then they would appeal to the people until they could get some referendum. And like in New York City, yeah. they Eventually forced it the through. People, yeah. And every city was like, what do you mean? You're just going to ignore the law? And they're like, yes, we will ignore it. We will deny it's a legitimate yeah. law. Yeah. Well, it and when you make us, we will pay the fines. Okay. And to my understanding, Paris was the first place that said, we're going to start arresting you. Yeah. Everyone who is caught, we're going to arrest the drivers, we're going to arrest the executives, and we're going to throw you in jail. Yeah. What about the people taking the And that seemed that to be the first place where it was like, that's not going to work that well. Yeah. So what did they do? And so now they've decided, I think, to go one step further, and they're just nationalizing it and trying to make their own Uber. And it sounds like it's not going that well. It, it is a very bizarre thing that the French government occasionally thinks that they could just sort of compete with Silicon Valley Oh, they by did this with the internet, project. didn't they? Yeah. yeah. It was Minitel. <laughs> They're just sort of like, hey, they made their own it's not internet. just industrial policy. It's like we will literally hire people to try to build a clone of whatever that thing is that the other people are making that we are angry about. And they always lose because ah, how are they ever going to be successful? Yeah, I, I don't want to get into the whole libertarian thing, but, no, governments, but governments tend to be good at things where some collectivism is needed, right? Yeah. Like, like healthcare, you may like it, you may not like it, but healthcare doesn't work on an individual basis, right? Someone, whether it's an employer or the government, yeah. someone has to roll up the risk. So there's at least a valid debate there. You want a highway system. You can't really get an interstate system if everyone's building their own. The government sort of, when you pick one of these things where they're like, you know, McDonald's, we could do that. We could sort of do, there's no reason. And governments just aren't that good at that. There could very well be a, you know, Shea McDonald in Paris, which is a government operator. I mean, I would not be surprised. But I feel I like not building surprised. a great McDonald's, We're not I, really I stand by government's bad at it. It's the yeah. kind of thing I don't expect the French to be any damn good at. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I don't mean to be prejudiced. Yeah. They're yeah. good at a lot of things. Right. Making a good McDonald's, I think low on the list. Well, listen, the McDonald's for some reason is not chosen to serve snails. There's a bigger problem. There's it's the way they say stuff here. Like I'm it bad. just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't feel Wait. like it works. Okay. Don't forget, by the way, to follow us on the various social networks, including a Facebook, a Facebook.com slash Stack Overflow Podcast on this Facebook. Do we have Instagram? Do we have? No? Podcast? No. No? Instagram. Sorry. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. iTunes, Google Play, <laughs> Google Play, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud. Or go to our website at stackoverflow.com slash podcast. Also, follow us on what is the one with Le Petit Oiseau, um, Swissair, um, uh, Twitter, Twitter, <laughs> at Stack Podcast. And join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pound stack overflow podcast, where uh, you should go to vote on this week's constitution question before it's too late and win a sticker. Okay, you have gone and wasted another hour of your life listening to Stack Overflow podcast number 91, recorded Tuesday, October 11th, 2016 at Stack Overflow headquarters. This podcast was brought to you by Sukkot, the Jewish festival of booths. Sukkot marks the end of the harvest time and thus the end of the agricultural year in the land of Israel. Our audio engineer is Carlos Hernandez. Ex-audio engineer Alex Miller is still hanging around because he left a bunch of things broken. Audio editor is David Greenlee. Producer is just Purdue. Executive producer, Caitlin Pike. For Emoji Miller, Jay Hammond, Dave Fulton, and Eli Mitzvah. I'm Joel Spolsky. Goodbye! Au revoir! Bye! Adieu!
the new game is like, what kind of like fake, super dirty app can Joel sneak in each week in a way that actually seems sort of natural? Like when you said, did you say Luber? <laughs> <laughs> I did not say Luber. I said Luber. I think you did, Trebek. Luber, Instagram, Facebook, Linky Dink. <laughs> Post your answer to Twitter using the hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast. Are you allowed to stand over the IT person while you wait for them to reset your password? 